How many of you are ready to get into the book of Revelation tonight? Amen? We got some good, good stuff to cover. You know, it's really right now about to get really rich. It's really about to get meaty. We're headed where a lot of you thought I might touch on when I first began. We're headed towards 666. Watch the crowd grow when I say we're going to be on 666 this, this week. Everybody wants to know about that. Or Antichrist. We're going to touch on that tonight. You know what? I love God's Word because I love the God of the Word. I, I, I worship the God of the Word, and because I worship the God of the Word, I esteem highly the Word of God. We're reading from a book unlike any book in all the earth because every, every other book on earth is from earth, but the Bible is not from earth. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we're dealing with a book, reading a book, studying a book, learning a book that I think you ought to know better than any other book in the, in the whole world. I, I'm, I'm a book reader. I've always been a reader. But I'll tell you, my number one book, far and away, is the Bible. The Bible will make even someone slow, wiser than a lot of earthly geniuses. Because I've seen geniuses make stupid decisions. But the Bible will give wisdom even to a simple person. The law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we're, we're looking tonight at what I believe is one of the great proofs of the, that the Bible is the Word of God, prophecy. The book of Revelation is overwhelmingly a book of prophecy, where the God that we just worshipped looked down the tunnel of time and told us what is coming. Matter of fact, he's already there waiting for us to arrive. So let's pray tonight and ask God to open our eyes. Father, we thank you that we're coming to your book, your Bible, comprised of 66 books of inspired literature, teaching, inspiration, instruction, warning prophecy. And we pray that tonight, Lord, you will open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see what the Lord is saying to the church and to prepare our own hearts for the return of Jesus Christ. And Lord, light under us a fire of evangelism as we see from this book of Revelation what is coming upon the world. Lord, help us to get that urgency for souls. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Will you breathe the prayer and just say, Lord, tonight, speak to me. Guide my heart. Renew my mind in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor, it's going to be good tonight. You better perk up and listen. You're going to need this. Amen. All right, this is the seventh session, and um, we're moving right along, moving at a really good pace, I think quicker than I've ever taught it. And uh, so... Let me just recap a little bit. Now, last time together, we closed out talking about the temple in Jerusalem and how it's going to play in end-time events. We're going to see tonight that the temple that is yet to be rebuilt is going to figure hugely in end-time events, in great tribulation events. That temple 
So let's begin by taking a look at some of the history of the temple. I want you to understand, you know, I really believe in reading history, looking back in history, because as you look back, it helps you to get a perspective on now and on what is coming. I really believe if you learn your history well, you can almost predict some things that will come, because history repeats. But we sure need to understand the history of the temple. So let me go into it, and it'll help us understand Revelation. When Abraham was told by God to offer Isaac, he went to the top of a mountain called Moriah, the top of Mount Moriah. And there, the drama of Isaac being spared by the intervening angel took place. Remember, Abraham lifted up that knife, and he was going to follow through with what God had said. And right when he lifted up his hand, an angel stopped him and said, don't do it. And it was there that God called Abraham his friend. So Mount Moriah became a hugely sacred place for the Jewish people. That was where that drama took place. Now, later, King Solomon ordered his engineers to literally cut the top off of Mount Moriah, and in an amazing engineering feat, they accomplished it in order to build the first glorious Solomonic temple, a temple that was so powerful, so beautiful, so overwhelmingly luxurious that when they dedicated it to God, no one in the temple could stand. They all fell on their faces because of the presence of God so filled that place. The Solomonic temple, it lasted for centuries. But when the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, after Isaiah and Jeremiah and several of the minor prophets warned them, if you don't repent, you're going to come under judgment. If you don't repent, God's going to judge you. Jeremiah himself for decades, from the time he was a young man till he was an older man, preached to Judah, you better turn, you better stop, you better quit all of this sacrificing of children and worshiping idols and being torn between who is going to be your God, get out of this polytheism, and worship the one and only true God. But Judah was hard-hearted, stone-hearted, and they refused to do what God was telling them through his prophets. So the horrible of horribles happened when the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, and they were finally. The glorious temple was destroyed in 587 B.C., this incredible temple that took unbelievable wealth to build, this temple that had been so owned by God was destroyed in judgment. Now, 50 years later, construction of a new temple was begun in 537 B.C., and after a 17-year hiatus, uh, work resumed in 520 B.C. God had to send a prophet to them and say, hey, quit focusing on your own houses and focus on the house of God. Did you know that? They had backslidden into uh, focusing on their own homes when they had come back from the captivity and God spoke through the prophets and said, quit putting your own homes first, put God first. And that's when they began to rebuild. They, after that 17-year hiatus, they began to build again the second temple. This was completed in 516 B.C., and it was dedicated in 515 B.C. So, catch this, 72 years after the first temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt and dedicated. Now, five centuries later, everybody say 500 years. This second temple was renovated by Herod the Great in about 20 
B.C. So 20 years before Jesus arrived, Herod began investing in beautifying and sort of renovating this second temple. This is the temple that the disciples pointed to and said to Jesus, can you believe the beauty of this thing? Can you believe the splendor of this temple? Matthew 24, 1-2, here's what happened. Jesus was leaving the temple grounds. His disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, but he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Do you know what that's like prophesying? You talk about putting all your eggs in, in one basket. You talk about putting your prophetic cred on the line. He pointed to a building that was five centuries old and that Herod himself was now overseeing the renovation of, and he said, boys, let me tell you, this that you're looking at and pointing to and admiring, it's all coming down. There's not even going to be one stone left on another. Graphically portraying what was going to happen when the Romans invaded Jerusalem in 70 A.D. under Cyrus, and about a million Jews were killed. This is why Jesus, when he looked at Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then he said, if only you had known the hour of your visitation, uh, meaning if only you had understood that your Messiah is looking you in the eyeball that God visited you in flesh, in me, but you missed it. And not only have you missed it, you're going to kill me. And so the judgment of God fell upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And that temple was destroyed again, totally destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of another, just like Jesus said. Now, when this happened, this incredible Really, it was a holocaust, a million Jews killed, and this terrible, terrible tribulation. And after 70 A.D., the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth, a people without a country, exactly according to what Moses had told them was going to happen to them, way back in the days of Moses. Now, I want you to listen to what Moses wrote, because folks, again, I tell you, the Bible is a book of prophecy. Did you know that one quarter of the Bible is prophetic? Did you know that? And as you know that you can give me any other so-called holy book in all of the world. Give me the Quran. Give, give me, uh, you know, any of the Indian mystics or, or Buddhism or anything. Any of the books that people consider holy books, the Sanskrit, anything like that. And they, are, they do not contain prophecy about the future. The Bible is the only holy book that contains prophecy. And the prophecies of Scripture so far have been fulfilled 100% on the money. And if they've been fulfilled heretofore, then what remains is certainly going to be fulfilled. It's a book of prophecy. A quarter of it is prophecy. Now, look at what Moses said was going to happen to the Jewish people way before Jesus and way before the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jewish people. Look what he said. Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 67. For the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. 
And watch this. He said, let me tell you what you're going to be doing. There you will worship foreign gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. You're going to worship gods made of wood and stone. There among those nations, Moses said, you will find no peace or place to rest. And the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. Your life will constantly hang in the balance. Can anybody say with me, Holocaust? Holocaust. Look here. Your life will constantly hang in the balance. You will live night and day in fear, unsure if you're going to survive as a people. In the morning, you will say, ah, if only it were night. Why would you say that? Because you don't want to face the day. And in the evening, you will say, oh, if only it were morning. Why? Because your dreams are filled with nightmares. For you will be terrified by the awful horrors you see around you. Is this fulfilled? Jewish history fulfills this prediction to a T. There has never been a place or time in which the Jews were not persecuted and despised and rejected. Not time. Read history. All through history, once they were scattered after 70 A.D. into all the nations of the world, anti-Semitism followed them and tracked them and stalked them and shadowed them everywhere they went. You know, you look at anti-Semitism sometimes and you go, it doesn't even make sense. It's not logical. Why is it here? Why is it here? God predicted that this would follow them because when Messiah appeared, they not only rejected him, they not only mocked him, they killed him. And not just the Jewish people, but so did the Romans. Now, in the meantime, Islam was born around 700 A.D. Now, Islam claims at the end of his life, Muhammad rode into Jerusalem and ascended into heaven on a horse from the very spot where the Jewish temple had been, the top of Mount Moriah. The believers in Muhammad, the Muslims, eventually built a structure on that very spot and called it the Dome of the Rock, and the Dome of the Rock has stood on the side of the temple since the late 7th century A.D. I've been in it. I've been in the Dome of the Rock. I went to Jerusalem I, went on, I saw the Middle East, and I went into the Dome of the Rock. There it is. It's where the temple used to stand. The Jewish temple used to stand. Now track with me. Follow me, because this is really going to matter. You're going to be reading about the things I'm covering right now in the newspaper one day or on the Internet, and some of it you're reading about right now. Meanwhile, God had promised through His prophets that the Jewish people would one day be restored to their homeland. And against all odds, after being scattered, everybody, listen, from 70 A.D. until 1948, they were a scattered people. They had no homeland. The fact that a scattered people like the Jewish people, after all those centuries would be brought back together as a people with their own nation is a complete miracle of God. Amen. Against all odds, after being relentlessly persecuted, despised, scattered, and homeless, Israel became a nation again in 1948 against all odds. 
And then jump ahead a few years in the famous Six-Day War of 1967, they took the sacred city of Jerusalem again. Now, folks, keep in mind, they had not taken it since 70 A.D. Since that time, since them winning Jerusalem again in the Six-Day War, the vitriol, the hatred, the war, and the bloodshed between Arab and Jew has been unrelenting. The crux of the problem is all about a battle over the land. It's all about the land. It's all about the land. So what does God say about the land? Let's be clear. There's no question that God gave that land to the Jewish people via Abraham, beginning all the way back in Genesis 12 and the covenant God made with, with Abraham. It says in Genesis 12:1. The Lord has said to Abram, leave your native country, leave your relatives, and leave your father's family, and go to where? Say it with me. The land that I will show you. Now you jump ahead six verses to verse 7, and it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And then we got to wonder, well, what land did God mean? Did he ever give the boundaries? Yes, he gave the boundaries many times in the Bible. You can find one great example in Numbers 34, 1 through 12, if you want to write that down. Numbers 34, 1 through 12, God gives all the boundaries of the promised land to the Jewish people. Now, this little history lesson matters when we come to Revelations 11, verse 1. Because let's read Revelation 11, verse 1. Here's John. He's been taken up into heaven. And an angel says, it says, it says an angel gave him a measuring stick. He says, then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure, what, everybody? The temple of God and the altar. And count the number of what? count the number of worshipers. So, John, I want you to go and measure the temple, and I want you to count the number of worshipers. Do a head count, John. Now, this verse, right, by itself, boldly predicts that the temple will ex again exist in the last days. You know why? Because you can't measure something that's not there. Jo John is given a vision, and, and God said, there, John, there's the temple. Now, I want you to go measure it and count the number of worshipers. So right there, that verse tells us two things, that the temple must be rebuilt. It must be rebuilt. And it'll be rebuilt where it used to be. You say, well, Jeff, how in the world is that going to happen because the Dome of the Rock is there? I don't know. I'm not God. But can anybody say earthquake? earthquake. Who knows how it can happen? But the Bible says it'll happen. Amen. It'll happen where it used to be. And it also presupposes, this verse, that the old Jewish sacrifices and temple worship will be reinstated. John is told, count the number of worshipers. Now, we're going to see in later chapters that the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. This is how he bursts onto the world scene. I believe Antichrist will come on the news, will be on the news, will, will make his play and come into worldwide admiration and recognition by cutting a peace treaty with Israel and brokering an Arab-Israeli peace treaty. Antichrist, according to the Bible, 
is going to solve the age-old Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, no doubt, one of the carrots that he places in front of the Jews will be to allow them to practice their Old Testament rituals and worship. But though temple worship in Jerusalem will be restored, it's going to be interrupted once more by an invasion of Gentiles. Now, let me just bring you up to speed. At the beginning of the tribulation, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, somebody will arise, I personally believe, out of Europe, probably out of the European Union. It will be a man, magnetic, charismatic, very, very eloquent, very attractive, very appealing, very peaceful looking. Remember, he rides a white horse. And he will arise and somehow be put in the position of dealing with the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, and what so many presidents have tried to do, I mean, most of us here today can't remember a president that wasn't trying to broker an Arab-Israeli peace. Right down to the one we've got today. And none of them have succeeded. Why? Because it's awaiting the man of sin, the lawless one, the Antichrist. He will do it. And when he does it for three and a half years, it will look like all is well with the Jewish people and with the Arab people. And, and the Jewish people finally have peace. They don't have to worry about being fenced in or gated in or protected by walls. Because there will be peace. Remember that verse that says, peace, peace, they will shout, and then there will be no peace, but sudden destruction will come upon them as a woman that goes into labor with a child. But for the first three and a half years, it will look all, all good between the Arabs and the Jews, and, and the Jewish people will be in their homeland, and, and I believe it might be then that the temple is rebuilt, and, and they'll start in the Old Testament style of Judaistic worship and sacrifices. But three and a half years in, Antichrist changes. And he walks into the temple, and we're going to read about that in just a moment, but just hold that thought where I just brought you to just now. Though temple worship in Jerusalem will be restored, it will be interrupted once more by an invasion of Gentiles. Listen to verse 2 of Revelation 11. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. Now, the word nations in the Greek language is ethnos. We get ethnic from the Greek word ethnos. The Greek word translated into ethnic groups, and it really means Gentile nations. The Gentile nations will trample the holy city for 42 months, says John, and that's talking about the second half of the tribulation, the last 42 months or three and a half years of the tribulation, the forces of Antichrist will wreak havoc on Jerusalem, the Jewish people, and Christians. Who will these Gentiles invader, invaders be? The forces of Antichrist. He will dominate the Middle East and Jerusalem for 42 months in the second half of the tribulation, and it will be horrible. That's when the War of Armageddon breaks loose. That's when the mark of the beast, and you can't buy or sell unless you do what you're told, and you wear that mark. That's when a totalitarian form of government takes over the world, the likes of which we have never seen. It'll make Hitler and Mussolini 
and Mao Zedong and Stalin look like kindergarten. So at the beginning of the tribulation, Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. Let me read to you what the prophet Daniel predicted. Daniel 9.27 says, The ruler, that is Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. And that just means seven years. Seven-year peace time span. No doubt about it, a peace pact between Arabs and Jews will finally be realized, but at the hands of Antichrist. Can you imagine, folks, the fame and admiration Antichrist will receive after solving a problem that has vexed the entire world for decades? Has Jerusalem and the Middle East problem not become a sore thumb for the entire world right now as we speak? Do you know that's prophetic fulfillment? God predicted, God tells us in the Bible that Jerusalem and Israel in the last days, that they will be like a sort of a a pebble in the shoe of the, of the entire world, that the whole world will be vexed by the problem and problems going on in that area of the world, though it's smaller than New Jersey. Now, at the end of the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will stop the Jewish worship and temple activities and commit what Scripture calls the abomination of desolation. Listen to what prophet, the prophet Daniel predicted. Daniel 9, 27. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven or seven years. But after half of this time, three and a half years, he will put an end to what, everyone? Read it with me. The sacrifices and offerings. That's the ver- one of the verses that leads me to believe that they will be, they will be uh, doing again the Old Testament types of worship and religious sacrifices because that's what he puts an end to. And as a climax, Daniel goes on to say, to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration, the abomination of desolation, until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Now, let me talk to you about the abomination, the abomination of desolation. What in the world is the abomination of desolation? It sounds terrible, does it not? Mm-hmm. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, let me take you back again, a little bit of history. In 167 B.C., a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus. You know, the Greeks, they worship Zeus and Apollos and all these Greek mythological, this pantheon of Greek gods. And Antiochus went in there. He set up an altar in the Holy of Holies to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He also sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And this event is known as the abomination of desolation. Now, follow me carefully. Jesus warned about this happening again. Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus said, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Then Matthew writes, reader, pay attention. Now it's important to keep in mind that in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus was speaking 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes committed his abomination of desolation. So 
Jesus can't have been talking about something that already happened. He must have been prophesying that sometime in the future, another abomination of desolation would occur in a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Revelations 13, 14. Well, when we get there, it's really going to be something when we get there in this study. But we're going to see when we get there that it eerily describes the Antichrist making some kind of an image that the whole world is forced to worship. Let me just read to you part of it. He, now the he here, is the false prophet. We're going to meet the false prophet later. The false prophet is sort of like Antichrist's evil John the Baptist. The false prophet will point to Antichrist and the false prophet will perform miraculous signs and wonders and will tell the whole world, that man is your answer. That's your man. That's your guy. That's the one that we need to follow. That'll be the ministry, the wicked, evil ministry of the false prophet. But the false prophet is the one who also brokers and brings to pass and brings into existence the, the mark of the beast, the false prophet. He, the false prophet, ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, and the beast is the Antichrist. He was given power to give breath to the image so that it could speak. Now, we're going to get to that. I don't want to steal my thunder from a few weeks from now, but let me just tell you what's happening here. John, remember I tell you over and over again, I've repeated this a lot, that John is a first century man looking through the prophetic eye to the 20th and 21st century. He is seeing things that no first century man has ever seen. And he sees something. He sees this false prophet causing there to be in the temple an image that talks. And through that image, he is able to compel and force, coerce, the entire world to worship the image of the beast who is Antichrist. Now, Bible scholars used to read this and go, what in the world, what what is this talking about? An image. And, 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 you know, there was a lot of things in Revelation that people, even a couple of centuries ago, couldn't wrap their minds around. But now, oh, listen, I know pastors who have, have a type of projector now, like these up here, a type of projector. As a matter of fact, I went to a church of a pastor friend of mine. He's got one. It costs a lot of money. He's got one, and he showed me how it works. They lower black drapes all around the pulpit, and then this projector comes on, and it downloads in front of you a three-dimensional image of the pastor. Yeah. And, and I step back, and I'm watching this thing, and it's my friend, okay? It's my friend. And this image starts talking and moving, and he's three-dimensional. And because he's surrounded by black curtains, you can't tell that it's not him. People will come in during the services when it's not really him there and think that it's him. And what's happening? An image is talking. Amen. You got it? And unless you step up and put your hand through him, you don't know that it's not real. And he says, when they're watching this, I'm off with my wife at a restaurant. 
on Saturday nights. You know, I hear something like that, and then I read the Revelation. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, the Antichrist, and he was given power to give breath to the image so that it could speak. Who knows? Everybody say, ooh. You never know. Maybe that's it. I don't know. So Jesus must have been prophesying that sometime in the future, another abomination of desolation would occur in a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and this image that talks is that abomination of desolation. This forbidden thing in the Holy of Holies is the abomination of desolation. Turning the temple of the living God into a place of worship for the Antichrist is truly an abomination. So for the first three and a half years, the new world leader will maintain warm and friendly relations with Israel, guaranteeing their integrity and their autonomy. He'll be a worldwide hero. Finally, the Arab-Israeli conflict will have been solved. If you ever wake up and you turn on the TV or you get a paper, you turn on the Internet and start checking news, and you read that somebody in the world brokered an Arab-Israeli peace, and it's a seven-year contract, lift up your head, your redemption draws nigh. But then he will break his treaty, invade Jerusalem, slay two witnesses that we're going to look at in just a moment, and continue his evil domination for the final 42 months. The Antichrist really shows the whole world who he was all the time in the last 42 months. There's an important lesson to learn here, and as if we need to hear it, but here it is anyway. You can't make a deal with the devil without getting burned. Now, John records that during the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to have a thorn in his side in the form of two witnesses who prophesy about the awesome judgments of God that are coming. I believe these are two Jewish witnesses. And look at there. They're, they're going to be in Jerusalem, and there's going to be two, two Jewish witnesses, two men in the streets of Jerusalem preaching to Jerusalem and the world declaring to the world that it's the judgments of God that are falling on them during the first three and a half years. Because remember, during the first three and a half years, the seal judgments are being released. Now let's read Revelations 11, 3 to 6. This is amazing because we got this drama going on in the middle of the, of the tribulation. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap, and will prophesy during those 1260 days or three and a half years. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, look what happens. Fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. How many of you would like that power for a day? Right? But look what happens. These are supernatural men. These are supernatural guys. They are preaching to the world, and if you come against them, fire comes out of their mouth, and you are consumed, which I take to be some kind of major judgment comes against you. And it says, this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. Look at verse 6 says, they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. Who does that remind you of? Elijah. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Who's that? Moses. Moses. 
Now, since it was Moses and Elijah that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, these two witnesses are more than likely, once again, Moses and Elijah. So, Jeff, how, how can it be them? They're dead. No, 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 they're not dead. They're resurrected. They're in heaven. They're in glory. And, and, and they can travel as God wishes them to travel. Amen. Moses represented the law of God. And it's the law of God that the world of this time will have utterly rejected. And Elijah represents the prophets whose warnings the world will also have thoroughly spurned. So when the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and invades Jerusalem, the two witnesses are finally slain. Revelation 11, verse 7, it says, When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. Who's that? Antichrist. Remember when I said Antichrist comes out of the bottomless pit? He comes out of where the devil is. When the beast, anytime you read beast, that's the Antichrist, comes up out of the bottomless pit, He'll declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. Now, I want you to notice how John uncannily predicts the ability of our present-day world to view something worldwide in real time, which can only happen via television or the Internet. Revelations 11, 8, and 9, and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. That's the way God will see Jerusalem before Jesus comes again. It'll be so backslidden. The city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, what does it say? All peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will do what? Read it with me. Stare at their bodies. John says this. He says it in the first century. How do he know this? How did he know that in our day, we could now do that in every time zone. Every human being in every time zone, in every nation on earth, can look at the same thing at the same time. Amen. Here it is in the book of Revelation. And this is another one that mystified Bible scholars for centuries. How could this be done? How can every eye see them? That is until the advent of satellite television and 24-7 news channels. Can you imagine CNN? <laughs> MSLSD, I'm sorry, MSNBC. Uh, I'm sorry, that was Fox News, CBS, NBC, ABC. Think about this, because with their cameras focused on these two men, they can send the signal to the whole world, and the whole world can look at the same image at the same time. This is just another amazing proof for me that the Bible is a supernatural book predicting times, predicting events, and even predicting inventions, millennia in the future. Notice next how a world experiencing the Great Tribulation rejoices over the death of these two men. Verses 9 and 10 predicts that no one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Is that not a wicked age? How can you, go with me here, how can you look at two men who if you come against them, fire comes out of their mouth and you're consumed, and you not hit your face and say, God, forgive me, I repent. But instead, since they preach the Word of God and stand for the Almighty God, 
They are the world's enemies, no matter how supernatural they are. Jesus walked on water, multiplied the fishes and the loaves, called people out of the dead, did miracle after miracle, but they killed him. And look, look what they do here to these two men. Worldwide celebration, gloating, present giving, celebrating, party time. But the worldwide celebration won't last long. I love this. God's going to crash their party. Verses 11 to 12 says this. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. And say the next four words with me. And they stood up. Can you imagine CNN, ABC, CBS? And can you imagine... Don't you know some cameramen are fainting behind the scenes? Because for three and a half days, these dead men, dead, they felt their pulse. You know they did, but they won't let people bury them because they want to gloat over their death. But all of a sudden, after three and a half days, with every single person in the world able to look at the same scene, they stand up. Because our God is a resurrection God. They stand up. You talk about dawn of the dead. But these are not zombies. These are resurrected righteous men. And look what it says. Terror, I guess so, struck all who were doing what? Staring at them. Then a loud voice came from heaven. Oh, what a picture of the catching away of the saints this is. A loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, and what did it say? Come up here. We're all going to hear that one day. Those three words, come up here. And that's all it's going to take. And what did they do? They rose to heaven in a cloud as the whole world watched. I don't know about you, once again, I see two men get up from the dead and float up into the clouds. I'm repenting. At the precise moment their resurrection happens, a massive earthquake will rock the city. Revelation 11, 13 says, At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city, Jerusalem. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You might recall that God has sent signs via nature several times in Scripture in order to signify that something of high spiritual significance has taken place. For instance, when Jesus hung on the cross, you remember the story, the Bible says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Pitch black like midnight at high noon. And when he died, Matthew records, the earth quaked and the rocks were split. God was speaking through natural manifestations of nature. So it's going to be when these two God-appointed witnesses are killed and resurrected. God wants to make sure the whole world understands those were my men, my prophets, because a great earthquake will rock Jerusalem. And next, look at what John warns in verse 14. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Now we're coming to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Everybody breathe deep and say, Jesus, thank you, I'm saved. In this powerful stuff? Say, Jeff, do you believe this? Of course I believe this. <laughs> Remember how we said at the beginning of this series that the action often shifts from earth to heaven 
and then back again. Now, at this point in chapter 11, John is taken up into heaven to witness the seventh angel blow his trumpet. So we're about to see the end of the trumpet judgments. That means 14 of the 21 major judgments are almost done. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. And what do they shout? Read it with me. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, this last trumpet will encompass the entire time period of the final 42 months. Described in detail all the way through chapter 19. From here, chapter 11 through verse, uh, chapter 19, we have the final 42 months of history. As we've already mentioned, the final 1260 days is called the days of the voice of the seventh angel. In heaven, John again sees the 24 elders representing all New Testament saints. Here's what they're doing. They're rejoicing. They're worshiping. And they're proclaiming what? That the time of rewards in heaven is at hand. While at the very same time, the hour of judgment on earth is in process. Verses 16 to 18, the 11th chapter, the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, we got to read these, this next part together. Ready? We give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. And it's without a vote. Thank God. Verse 18, the nations were filled with wrath. This is still the, the 24 elders talking. The nations were filled with wrath. But now the time of your wrath, Lord, has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Now, following this incredible scene, the remaining chapters of John's Revelation describe the conclusion of history as we've known it. As Jesus pronounced just a chapter or so ago, uh, the end of time is at hand here. Time is no more. Civilization as we know it will destroy itself. Folks, we're not headed, headed towards a, an evolutionary progress. We're in a digress. Are you going to tell me that America is progressing the direction we've been going and the rest of the world? No, it's a digress. It's doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. And civilization without the intervention of Jesus Christ would totally annihilate itself. And Jesus Christ is about to intervene in majesty and glory. Chapter 11 closes out with the tumult of lightning, thunder, and earthquake, and hail. More trouble for earth is on the way. In verse 19 it closes. Then in heaven... The temple of God was opened, and the ark of His covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. 
next time, I, I really love what we're covering next time because I see it happening in front of our eyes. We're going to meet a woman, and we're going to meet a dragon, and we're going to meet a prostitute religious system that I believe is forming in front of our eyes right now. So stand up with me, would you? How many of you, I say this every time, but isn't it good to know, how many of you are glad you're saved? Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad for the blood of the Lamb? Amen. Let's, let's go to Him. Let's lift our hands right towards the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you gave us this revelation. You gave it to us so that we would know what's coming, so that we would understand the times, so that we would not be taken by surprise. So that we would not be deceived. And so, Lord, we come to you and we thank you right now for this prophetic book. And, Lord, we thank you that even as we see many of these things coming to pass, we do not live in a spirit of fear, but we live in boldness, power, love, and a sound mind. For we know who holds the future. And we thank you, Lord, that future will end at your feet, and you're the Lord of the future. We praise you and thank you. 